you open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, for the morning text, Hebrews chapter 8. Our children, uh, kindergarten to second grade, can be dismissed to children's church if they wish, through the door over here by the piano. Just a reminder, uh, on snowy days like this, where you wonder whether or not there's church, just a housekeeping item, uh, you can check the church website and... The status of the church will be posted on the church website. We're also trying one of these uh, automated call things. Did anyone get the automated call from Phil? Yeah. That was pretty cool, huh? So we're now one of those automated, you know, marketing caller type churches that are harassing you with robotic messages. But Phil, you sounded good, man. You sounded real good. Yeah. So anyway, in the future, if you want to know the website... Hopefully you'll get a call from us through the automated system. If you want to be on the automated call system, just give us your phone number at the church office and we'll put you on it. And that's a great way to keep in touch. All right, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. Let me read the text. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry of Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. Have you ever had the experience in your Christian life, going through a period in your Christian life where it felt like there was a a great distance between you and God. Like God was way out there somewhere, inaccessible to you. Uh, You know, sort of like one of the ancient emperors of China inside the Forbidden City. Or maybe like the President of the United States. You know, he's in the White House. You can go to the White House. You can stand at the fence on the South Lawn and look in. But, you know, good luck trying to get and see the President. You know, there's security measures, there's electronic monitoring, there are heavily armed men with automatic weapons standing between you and the president. And so, yeah, you're there, but it's like he's a million miles away. Uh, And there's times in our Christian lives when we go through these sort of periods. Um, Perhaps you've gone through a, a season of extended grief or loss where you've lost someone you love or things are just rough. You know, you, you go through uh, perhaps a, a chronic illness battling month after month after month or a job loss that, that stretches on or even just a family conflict that's been going on for months or years. And, and you pray because we're Christians and so we pray and we pray and we pray some more and we ask other people to pray for us and we get ourselves on different prayer chains. But it just seems like it's, it's useless. It doesn't go anywhere. No matter how fervently we pray, no matter how hard we strive, rather than our prayers leaving our mouths and we feel as if they're sort of flying on wings of faith up to God's ear, it's more like we open up our mouths, you know, and out falls a brick. 
And then you look down and there's a whole pile of bricks. You're like, ah, I've been praying. And, and you know, is God even listening? Is, is there really God there? You start to doubt. You know, questions come in your mind. Is there really a God? Oh, of course there's a God. But sometimes it doesn't seem like it. Well, of course I don't believe that. And you even struggle with doubt at times. And so we come to a church service like this and we, we sing these great old hymns that used to stir our hearts. But now it's like, Nothing. It's just sort of numb. And you see people around you and they're obviously singing with gusto from their hearts or so it appears. And you go along with it, but you're like, you know, I, I've lost something. There's a connection that's missing for me. Or maybe uh, it's not a period of loss and grief, but it's uh, a period of sin in our lives. You know, as Christians, we're going to the promised land, but we keep being tempted to go back to Egypt and to flirt with old habits and old ways of relating and old ways of coping with stress and problems in our lives and sinful uh, relationships we shouldn't be in, just things that keep pulling us backward. And, and as Christians, sometimes we go backwards and we, we go back to where we shouldn't be. And then we finally come to our senses by God's grace and we go, what am I doing? I need to get back on the road. But you look and you go, oh, I've fallen so far away. It's going to take forever to get back to the Lord. It's, it's like there's this enormous distance. He can't even hear my prayers. I can't even shout loud enough to get in touch with Him. I used to be on the mountaintop with God, but I got in the inner tube and went down the river of sin. And it was a blast until I went over the waterfall and crashed. And now I'm out of the river and I'm thinking, what was I thinking? Now I'm going to go all the way back up the mountain. And it's at times like that that we, we feel this, this sense of distance from God and we don't have a, an impression of His nearness and love for us in our hearts. And Christians can go through seasons like that. And when we're in those seasons is when we need texts like this text today. This is a passage that we need to be reminded of. We need to be reminded that as Christians, our relationship with God and our connection to God is not based upon our vacillating feelings and our up and down emotions and and our personal impressions and sensings of God's reality in our lives. Rather, our confidence is in the fact that we have a great high priest. And when we feel far from God, our confidence is in the fact that our high priest stands in the presence of God Himself. And that He is with God for us. That is our confidence as Christians. And so look at Hebrews chapter 8. Just a wonderful text about the high priesthood of Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 1. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest. Now, if you were here last Sunday, we did all of chapter 7 at one big sermon. We did this big sermon on this guy named Melchizedek. Do you remember that if you were here? And we saw that just as Melchizedek was a, high, was a priest who was superior to Abraham, so Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek, and he's greater than the Old Testament priests that came out of Abraham. So we saw this kind of typology, this parallel last week. So the, the point the author's been trying to make is we have a superior high priest. And so he's making the point again, chapter 8, verse 1. The point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest, such a superior high priest, who sat down at the right hand of the majesty of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord not by man. So now the author wants to take us a step further in thinking about the superiority of Jesus as our high priest. 
And not only is he our high priest superior to the Old Testament priesthood, but notice this, he's serving in a tabernacle and a sanctuary that's superior to the one that the Old Testament priests served in. So here's another way in which Jesus is superior. So he went to heaven when, after he was resurrected. He sits at the Father's right hand and he serves in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Now what's that talking about there? What's the sanctuary in the true tabernacle? I mean, what, what's a tabernacle? You know, where do you get a tabernacle? Is, is, what aisle is it in at Walmart? You know? Like, if I was going to go buy a tabernacle at Target, like, where would I go? And where would I look for it? What is it? So, what, what's a tabernacle? It's a tent. It's kind of a fancy word for a tent. It's cloth. You know, it's a tent. You go and sleep in a tent. It's a tent. And it, it, they would break it down and they'd carry it around with them. So, the Israelites had this tabernacle. But it wasn't just any tent. It was the tent where God camped. So when the Israelites were tromping through the wilderness and they set up their tents, you know, God had his tent, in a sense, in a sort of a symbolic, small kind of way. They set up this shrine for God. It was a portable shrine. Uh, This was common in the ancient world. We read uh, in Phoenician literature and Egyptian literature and uh, these people called the, the Ugarites, uh, they have Ugaritic literature. They had these shrines they would carry around. So when the Egyptians went into battle, they'd all set up their tents. In the middle of the, of the camp, they would have the tents of the gods, and they would put the little statues of the gods in there. So if the Egyptians wanted to know, shall we go attack tomorrow, they would go and they would consult the god in the shrine, and they'd go talk to this little statue. Well, the Israelites had something kind of like that, and yet it wasn't like that. It was like it in that it was sort of the portable house of the God, but it was unlike it in that they didn't have a statue in it because they worshipped the living God, not idols. And so it was kind of a symbol of God's presence among them. So, for instance, uh, let's go back to the book of Exodus real quick where we first see this portable shrine. Put a bookmark here in Hebrews. Go back to Exodus 25. Let's go back to the tabernacle when it was first being built. Exodus chapter 25, it's on page 78, second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. So, uh, let me just tell you where we are in the narrative of the Bible storyline. Israel has come out of slavery in Egypt. Israel has come to Mount Sinai. Moses has come down with the Ten Commandments. But there's more than just Ten Commandments. There's a whole bunch of commandments God gives to Israel. Among them, instructions for building this portable tent for God. God's tent. Okay? Now notice verse 8 of chapter 25. God says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So here's the sanctuary, here's the tabernacle, and it's going to be the place where God dwells among them. So in some small relative kind of way, God is going to uniquely manifest His presence in that tent. I mean, you know, where's God? Well, God's everywhere. And yet, even though He's everywhere, He doesn't reveal Himself equally everywhere. There's times and places where God reveals Himself in a very clear, focused kind of way. And this is one of those times God chooses to sort of reveal Himself in that tent. So that the tabernacle is the dwelling of God. So when you think of the tabernacle, don't think of a place where the people met together. Okay, This wasn't a huge tent where all the people all crowded together underneath it. It's not like the old revival meetings. 
you know, in the old days, and they'd put a tent up and have a big revival tent, and everyone would get underneath it, as if you could, you know, schedule a revival. I mean, that's another sermon I could rant on, but I'll leave that. Uh, but so it's not like that kind of tent. It's more like think in the old um, medieval movies, where the king and his knights would go out to battle, and they would camp the night before the battle, and all the knights would have their tent. And remember, the king would have his tent. And it would have special flags flying from it. And it would be surrounded by special guards. And every once in a while in the movie, someone would go in and say, Sire, and they would go see the king in his tent. And the king would have even a little throne in his tent. And he would sit down on it. And he would hold audience right there. And it was like a little palace, a little throne room that was portable. That's what you got to think of for God. This is his portable throne room. In fact, he even had a throne in it. What was that? The Ark of the Covenant. You know Indiana Jones, the Ark of the Covenant, that whole thing? Right. Before Indiana Jones found it, it was, it was in the wilderness. Now it's in some government building. But all right, look, at, look at Exodus chapter 25 and look at uh, verse 21. Now we're still in Exodus. This is instructions for building the Ark. It says, place the cover on top of the Ark and put in the Ark the testimony which I will give you. And there above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant, the testimony. Here we go. I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. The king will be over the Ark giving instructions to the subjects. So it's a portable throne room for God who has chosen to come down and dwell among the Israelites. That's what the tabernacle is. It's the dwelling place of God. Okay. Now we've got to bring in a second element here. We've got to bring in the priesthood. Because that's another part of this picture. Now let's, let's go back now. Jesus is a priest. There were priests in the Old Testament. The priests were the ones who could go in the tabernacle. Not just anyone could walk in and say, Hey, I want to go talk to the king. Hey, you know, God, what's going on? That was certain death. You could only do that if you were approved, if you were a priest. So what was the priest's role? Well, let's go back to Hebrews 8. From Exodus 25. Go back to Hebrews 8. And notice what it says in verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. So the priests had a particular role. Their job was to go into the king's courtyard, his throne, and they were to bring gifts and sacrifices, sacrificial animals. Now, now what was that all about? Well, here's the problem. and We've talked about this before. You have a kind of a challenging situation here. You have the holy God of the universe choosing to camp with sinful people. You have holy, 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 almighty God dwelling among sinful, sinful, sinful Israel. You know, grumbly, whiny, complainy, mutinous... Israel that makes golden calves when Moses is gone a little bit too long. You know, that Israel and the holy creator God of the universe is going to camp next to them? This is a combustible situation. This is bad chemistry. This is the kind of chemistry where you put two things together and it goes boom. (laughs) This is uh, very volatile. Uh, God's holiness, God's purity is so... um, He's so pure and glorious. He is the essence of that which is good and righteous. He is, he's devoted to His glory, to the most valuable thing in the universe, which is Himself. He's the essence of goodness. And, and it's, a, 
It's a proactive, burning glory. It's, uh, you know, it says our, our God is a consuming fire in His glory and His beauty and His purity. And so you take that God and you put Him among the dry grass of sinful humanity and you have a problem for sinful humanity. <laughs> you know, if God just comes down and, and just plop down among the Israelites without doing anything else, it would just be God's tent and all the other tents would be gone. You know, and God is a holy God. And, and we forget this. People say, I, I just couldn't believe in a God who would send good people to hell. You're right, He doesn't send good people to hell. He sends us to hell. Because we're not good. Oh, we're not that bad. You know, it's like, what are we smoking? I'll tell you we're smoking. It's called sin. Sin makes you stupid. And it makes us think that we're wonderful and acceptable and not so bad because I compare myself to other sinners. And I'm like, you know, he's, that guy, he's got some problems. And I don't have those problems, so I'm doing pretty good. But we don't think to look up to the glory of God. And were God simply to come down and dwell among us, it would be the end of us. So not only does God in His kindness choose to dwell among people, but He also provides a mechanism for protecting us from the judgment that we deserve. And that is the Old Testament sacrificial system which prefigures Jesus. So what happens is there's these, these animals that are brought to be sacrificed. And, and we talked about this last week. The people would bring the sacrifice. They'd put their hands over the animal. They'd confess their sins. And then the animal would be slaughtered, which is pretty gruesome. Why did they do that? Well, because it was a visual, visceral picture of the fact that the wages of sin are death. And that when we turn against God and rebel against Him, that's what we deserve. But in His mercy, God is allowing a substitute to take the place and to take the judgment. So the priests have a very important role. I, I use this image before. They're the shock absorbers. They're the ones who allow the great weight of God's majestic, pure glory to settle upon the dry, brittle grass of sinful humanity without crushing it as that sacrificial system absorbs the presence of God among His people. So now God can dwell among them. And, and that's why in verse 3, the priest's main job is to be that shock absorber, to offer gifts and sacrifices. And so, this, let's follow the logic now in verse 3. So it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth... He would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. Okay, so just follow the logic here. He's starting to make his argument. The logic goes like this. If Jesus is a priest, then he's got to have something to offer. And he also has to have some place to offer it. There's got to be a tabernacle. So now we have this comparison. Jesus is superior to the Old Testament priesthood. Jesus is our superior high priest. Jesus offers a better sacrifice than the Old Testament priesthood. And we'll talk about that later, but he sacrificed himself. And Jesus serves in a superior tent than the Old Testament priests. So this is the comparison that's being drawn. Point by point, the author is systematically using the Old Testament to contrast the great priest Jesus who is foreshadowed in the Old Testament to the Old Testament priesthood and show Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. He's even in a better tent. He's even in a better tabernacle. Because look at verse 5. They serve at a sanctuary, the Old Testament priests, serve at a sanctuary that is a copy 
and a shadow of what is in heaven. Isn't that interesting? So the tabernacle that God instructed them to set up was actually just a copy. It was a replica. It wasn't the real dwelling place. It was like a little, you know, kind of uh, copy replica dwelling place. It made me think of like when my kids make forts in the house. You know, you guys ever make forts? When I was a kid, we'd make forts. My parents would turn their back on us for half an hour. They'd come back in the room and it'd be totally covered with blankets and, you know, brooms holding up blankets. And, you know, the parents walk in, they're like, you know, that's a great fort. And, and you know, oh, don't tear it down, Mom and Dad. We want to leave it up. My kids do the same thing now to me. And, and I'll go into a room and there'll just be blankets everywhere. And they've constructed, like ants, this enormous fort. And they're like, come in the fort, Dad. Come in the fort. So you get down your hands and knees and you crawl in this little fort, you know, trying not to knock it over. And you look around and then they start showing you around. They go, okay, this is the kitchen. And, you know, they got little plates. And they're like, and this is my bedroom. And that's, that's his bedroom. And this is our living room here. And that's the bathroom over there. <laughs> and they laugh. You know, this is this whole thing. <laughs> then you're like, oh, I see. This is just a little copy of our house. It's in our house, but it's like a little house based on our house, based upon their little apprehension of our house. And they've built a little house within ours. And that's what the tabernacle was. It was a little copy of something greater. Or notice the second image he uses in verse 5. It's a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. So here's the real, and the glory is shining from behind it, and as that glory shines from behind it, a shadow falls upon the earth, and that shadow is what the Old Testament tabernacle was. Some scholars suggest that there's kind of some platonic influence here. Do you remember your Plato from college? That the real, the world of the real, and the world, this world is just the world of shadows, and there's the real realm up there of the the true forms, and this world is just a shadowy world. You know, maybe there's some of that kind of coming through here. We're not sure exactly. But this idea of the real and the shadow that is in heaven. So that tabernacle was just a copy, but Jesus went to the real. He's a better priest who offered a better sacrifice in the real tabernacle, not the earthly one. And uh, if I could just do a little tangent for a minute. One of the things that I was thinking of as I was thinking about these texts, I thought this was a good reminder for us as Christians not to put too much emphasis on buildings because it's just, it's just a building. It's not even a, a tabernacle building. You know, I was thinking about this building here. I love this building. You know, this is a special building to me. Uh, it's a special building to some of you. I, I've had a lot of special memories in this place. I got married right here. Like I was standing right, you know, <coughs> there, and my wife stood right there, and that's where I got married. And I preached some of my very first sermons here. I have sweet memories of seeing God almost visibly moving among the people from His Word, you know, during a message. It's a special place. But let's be clear, this is not a sacred place. See a difference? Special, yes. Sacred, no. This is not a holy place. There's nothing holy about this room. You know, if we were down in Fellowship Hall, I've done this a million times, and I was trying to instruct someone to come up to this room, I would say, you need to go up to the what? Sanctuary. I, I've said that probably a thousand times. But, you know, really, if I thought about it, I probably shouldn't call this a sanctuary. You know, the, the Latin word sanctus, holy, holy place. This is not a holy place. It's just a place. What's holy is you. And what's holy is the Lord. 
And this is a place we set aside. And I've said this before. I would love to, I don't know how we could change this in our church's culture. I would love to call this the meeting house. Because this is what it is. It's a house where we meet to be the people of God together. If we were, I know this is going to sound crazy. Maybe this is just, I've had too much snow and I'm going crazy here. But if we were to, uh, to move all the pews away during the week and let this be a dance hall where they served drinks and smoked. And then on Saturday night, cleaned it up and moved all the pews back you know this place wouldn't be spiritually contaminated or anything. It, it wouldn't, like, ruin it. it. It wouldn't be like the Holy Spirit be like, oh, I can't go there. There was dancing. There. You know? You know where this church used to meet before I met here? G.A.R. Hall. Do you know where that is? It's Grand Army Hall. It's right down the street. I love talking to the old timers. I'm like, tell me what it was like to have a church in Grand Army Hall basement. They said, we used to come early in the morning before service and sweep up the cigarette butts and clean up from the partying the night before. And then they had church. You know? I just, I, I just was thinking about that. There's, there's a church down in Plymouth that meets in uh, Memorial Hall in Plymouth. Man, I'm praying that God's going to fill that 1,200-seat place uh, with New Hope uh, in Plymouth. There's a church that meets in Norwell at the Cushing Center. That church is busting at the seams. Praise God. In Nor- I've been praying for a church in Norwell that would preach the gospel. Clearly, it's happening. There's a church in Hanover. You guys see the one that used to be in the carpet store on 53? And I actually just went in there for the first time. They gutted out an old carpet store, and now it's a place where they meet. You know, God can meet all kinds of places. I think it's a good reminder, uh, especially as we go into a building project, which I'm completely in favor of because we really need space in this church. So I'm not, I'm not an anti-building person. I'm pro-building. But I just think, I feel like as we go into something of that magnitude, we kind of have to have our heads screwed on right about what we're doing. We're creating a bigger meeting space. But ultimately, the tabernacle is in heaven, or as we see in the New Testament, it's also in us as Christians who are the temple. And so, that was just an earthly copy. It was just a shadow. Jesus was in the real one. In fact, look what it says here in verse 5. It says, This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So, he's quoting Exodus 25. So, I told you to bookmark that. Let's go back to Exodus 25 and bookmark Hebrews 8. Check it out. Let's read it for ourselves from Exodus 25. This is a part of the whole Old Testament tabernacle construction process. If you look at Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, God's given them all these instructions, and He says in 2540, See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. That was when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. Same thing back in verse 9. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So the reason we know it's a copy and a shadow is because God said to Moses, I'm going to show you the real thing, and you're going to make it based on this pattern. It's going to be a copy that you're going to have to create this thing by. So you know that helps me actually understand a little bit of the Old Testament a little better, when I understand that the earthly tabernacle was just a copy and shadow that was based upon the real courtroom of God in the heavenly realms, that helps me understand, helps me understand two things. I now know why there's so much time spent in the book of Exodus on how to build the tabernacle. Have you ever taken the New Year's resolution? I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover. One of the places where that can get derailed is when you come to all the instructions about the tabernacle. It's like chapter after chapter, you're like, okay, so they built the altar, then they built a, a table, then they built some lampstand. Like, what, what does this have to do with anything? 
I'll tell you, it just shows you. It, this is God's heavenly realm being replicated in a very specific kind of way. In fact, if you look at chapter 31 of Exodus, not only did God give them the pattern, God gave the workmen. It says in Exodus 31, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. He's going to be this guy who's like Holy Spirit inspired to build the building. I mean, can't you just find a builder? No, no, no. This has got to be exact because this is the replica of that which is in heaven. So just like the Holy Bible, in a kind of sense, was inspired by men, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God through men, so it's kind of like the tabernacle was an inspired building and had to be done a certain way. It also explains to me, the second thing that this idea of the tabernacle being a pattern of the one in heaven explains to me, it also helps me understand why that old tent in the Old Testament was so lavish. You look at how that thing was built. I don't have time to go through all the details, but that thing was posh. I mean, it was like gold tables and gold arcs and, and tapestries that were beautiful pieces of art woven with glorious colors and you know, angels and cherubim woven into the fabric. Why? Because it was a picture of the glory and weight and value of God in heaven. It was, it was a dim little earthly symbol of how awesome God is in His glory. It just helps me understand the Old Testament better when I see that this tabernacle in the Old Testament was a picture of the one in heaven. Okay, speaking of tabernacles and threads, let's pull all the threads together here. We've kind of gone a few places. Let's pull together. Why does it matter that the tabernacle was the house where God dwelt? And why does it matter that the priests served there? And why does it matter that the earthly one was not the real one, but that there is a heavenly one that it's based upon? Let's pull all that together. Why does this all matter? This is why. Because Jesus is our high priest in the real living presence of God. That's why it matters. You know, where is Jesus today? Is he still in the grave? Is he dead? No, he's risen. Okay, well, after he rose, where is he? Is he just kind of lurking around here? Is he like some kind of immortal, like in the movie Highlander or, or uh, Hancock, you know, this kind of immortal superhero guy dwelling among men? No, he's not here. After he rose from the dead, he ascended to the Father's right hand. And so he's in the very presence of God, our high priest in the real tabernacle in heaven. And what's he doing there? Above all else, he's interceding for the saints for whom he bled and died. Again, look back at chapter 7, verse 25. Just a reminder from last Sunday. Therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save completely. I need complete salvation. He can save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Like a priest, he is in the presence of God pleading for us. So have you ever felt that God was far away, like you couldn't talk to God as if there was some sort of membrane separating you from God and, and you were in grief and agony in your life and you pray and you pray and you keep praying because that's what you're supposed to do, but you don't feel a thing 
and it seems as if God must just be busy or distracted. And you just wonder, is God hearing anything? How can I get through to God? And maybe you, you pray so much that you finally really give up. You stop praying. And people are like, how are you doing? You say, well, I'm, I'm praying. But actually, you're not praying because you just can't pray anymore. Because it's like God's not listening. What an encouragement to know that the same Savior who bled for you and for me is praying for us when we can't pray and we don't pray. You know, We're like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're tired. We're falling asleep. We're overcome with our weakness. And we fall asleep on the job. Instead of praying, we just give up. Oh, but there's the Savior over there. Do you see Him? He's still praying. And it's even better than in Gethsemane because He's not the Savior before the trial, weak and, and weeping and sweating. He's now the Savior, victorious and perfected at the Father's right hand, praying for us. And so when you can't pray and you're just like, is God there? You've just got to take your eyes off your feelings and your situation and, and just rest. Rest in the confidence that Christ has got you and that He's praying for you and He is there for you even when you can't be there for yourself, for Him. Have you ever fallen so far away from God and gotten caught up in sin like we talked about before? You, you took the tube ride down the mountain because, wee, sin is fun. And then you went over the cliff and then you, you know, wash up on the shore. You're like, what am I thinking? That was a disaster. That's so stupid. And now you say, how can I ever get back? It's so far up that mountain. It took like a minute to ride down the water and it's going to take forever to hike back up. You think, I can't make it back. What confidence we have to know that Jesus never left the mountaintop. That He's still in the Father's presence. He's still there for us. And when, when God looks down at you and you think all God can see is my sin, you know what He actually sees? He sees Christ in your place. Rather than your dirty hands, he sees the nail prints. And Jesus holds those up and he says, look here, Father. That one, that one's mine. I bought that one. He's mine. And so we can have such confidence to keep battling on in our faith. You can get and, and keep going. Not because of you or me, but because of the Savior we have in heaven. And what about when we reach the end of our lives and we just start losing it? You know, that happens. Have you ever met a... Have you ever known a real stalwart Christian? I'm talking about like one of those strong Christians who's a prayer warrior and a Christian who's always going around leading Bible studies. And, you know, that's the Christian you call when you're in trouble and you need someone to encourage you. And, you know, that kind of Christian, you go to them and they're always going around encouraging others and strengthening others. One of those just stalwart warriors for Jesus. And then they get old and in some cases their mind starts to fail. And all of a sudden, this person who was just the epitome of spiritual strength is, becomes like a baby and they can't remember things. You know, maybe they have Alzheimer's or dementia, but some, their minds just start to go. And, and maybe their personalities change. Maybe they become like a different person. You know, they become more aggressive or more angry. Maybe they become suicidal and depressed. And they've never been suicidal and depressed their whole life. It's like, what's happening here? Here's this, this strong warrior who's now enfeebled, and, and maybe even their personality just kind of recedes into that mysterious mist of, of old age. And the body is there, but the person's not there. And you think, 
Where did they go? Where is that person? And that's when we have confidence. That regardless of wherever that person's mind has gone, that Jesus still stands for that saint at the Father's right hand. And even when that person can't remember their own name, Jesus has never forgotten her. He has never forgotten him. And so even to the end of our life, when we utterly fall apart and we can't even think, our confidence is not in our emotional strength, it's not in our morality, it's not in our intellectual, cognitive processing ability. It's completely in the fact that we have a high priest at the right hand of the Father. And apart from that, we have no hope. Is Jesus your high priest? Can you say with confident assurance, yes, I have owned Jesus as my high priest. I didn't ask you, do you believe in God? I hope you do. I didn't ask you, do you feel spiritual? I'm saying, have you laid hold of Christ Himself as your high priest who is sufficient for your weakness, who is sufficient for your sins, who is sufficient for all of the struggles of life, even life and death, He is the high priest we need. And as it says in verse 1, we do have such a high priest. Let's pray.